Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. First up this week, the great Holly Hunter. Hands down, one of the greatest actors in the game. One of my all-time faves. She has had unforgettable roles in some of the best movies of the last 30 years or so. Raising Arizona, Broadcast News, The Piano, The Big Sick. I mean, I could go on and on. And, I mean, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but I would say Holly Hunter's characters don't waste time. They know what they want, they know how to get it, and the sooner that you move out of the way, the better it'll be for all of us. For the first time in a while, Holly is starring on a new TV show. It's called Mr. Mayor. It's the new sitcom created by Tina Fey and Robert Carlock. Holly's co-star, Ted Danson, plays the show's title character, Los Angeles Mayor Neil Bremer, who's a kind of hapless political novice who backed into the mayorality. Holly plays Arpy Meskimen. She's been on the city council for decades, and she, like many Holly Hunter characters, doesn't believe in wasting time. And as you're about to hear, she is very opposed to Mayor Bremer's first initiative, a proposed ban of plastic straws. A ban on bendable plastic straws is blatant discrimination against quadriplegics or any Angelina with limited use of their hands. It's an outrage. They call themselves quaddies or chair dogs. No, we don't. Oh, I'm sorry. My nephew must have been pranking me. Mayor Bremer, memorize this face. Zoom in on me. Fine, I'll come to you. I've got your number, Bremer. Like underwear bought in a drugstore. You're not going to last two months. Holly Hunter, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Hey, Jesse. I asked this almost exact same question to Ted Danson last week, but I read in in a joint interview that the two of you did about you asking him about doing the kind of comedy uh, that is in a Robert Carlock, Tina Fey show, which is to say, just jam-packed with very complicated jokes, just joke, 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 jokes, as, as in like underwear bought in a drugstore. And the advice that I read he gave you was, uh, let the wind blow through your hair, which I thought was the most beautiful thing. (laughs) But like, you've done plenty of comedy, but I don't know if you've ever done comedy this jokey. What does it feel like to do it? Well, you know, at the first read through that we did for NBC, uh, I was sitting in between Ted Danton and Bobby Moynihan. And I, you know, I was in the middle of two maestros um, and they played as such. I learned so much from them just in that first read through. It was so impactful and I was very nervous. And it, it is, it's like a completely different genre, but in a way, you know, not totally without precedent. I mean, in a way, I feel like Tina and Robert are related to, to Howard Hawks. I mean, if you go back to the 40s and you see some of those movies with Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, it, it's in Myrna Loy in the Thin Man series. It's so fast. It's so nimble. And this, I don't know, I, I feel like this show is a little bit like a cannonball. 
you know, it requires mental, physical, verbal dexterity from the actors. And I think when we're warmed up, when we're in that space together, it's just, it's a high. It's, it's so much fun to shoot this. I was thinking about this one joke that, that Mike Catalan says to, to Vela Lavelle. Well, he says, I, I like your pants. And, and she says, oh, yeah, I said the word pants near my phone and they showed up at my house. And, you know, and then it's gone. So it, it requires, I was thinking the other day, it's like you can totally watch this show. You can have a glass of wine and watch this show and really laugh. Or you could have a cup of coffee and probably catch a few more jokes. <laughs> I I was reading interviews with you and some of them came with glamorous publicity photos. And in some of those photos, you have this hairstyle that I think of as women's television hairstyle, which is a kind of like loose, wavy curls just off the face, sort of medium long hair and big curls that frame the face. And I, my understanding mm -hmm. is that this hairstyle is popular in television because uh, hair people like it because it's easy to keep in continuity because it doesn't move very much. Um, and on this show, Mr. Mayor, you basically have the literal opposite of that hairstyle. <laughs> like your hair is the hair of your character, the most unglamorous person on earth. Um, <laughs> and um, like a person for whom Patagonia is much too glamorous. <laughs> what is it like to like show up to hair and makeup and have them be like, mm, let's make this more awkwardly choppy. Well, you know, that was something that I really, really wanted. I mean, I so loved the idea of having this, like, in a way, like a an early 90s, it's like an early 90s haircut um, done badly that Arpy got, say, in the early 90s and just went, this works for me. It's, it's wash and wear. I can get up and go. Um, and then she just stays with it, you know, 20 years later, she's, she's still cutting her hair that exact same way because why not? It's hassle-free. And, and, and it is a really bad, it's a bad cut, but it, it comes from, I really wanted to fulfill Mike Caballon's line. The ver almost the very first thing she, he says about Arpy is, I hate her haircut. And I just thought, oh, that's, that's such a key into this woman, a hateable haircut. You know, sometimes it's so liberating to come upon one aspect that if you fulfill that aspect, you are in new terrain. And that's what it's like with Arpy. Once I, you know, Tina and I talked and talked about this haircut because I really, really wanted it. And once that happened, Arpy came much more into focus just for me, psychologically, you know, I, I felt uh, uh, Arpy. Um, I, I want to ask you about your childhood. Your original mode of art was playing piano and you quit kind of committedly, like you really quit playing piano in public. Uh, what did playing piano mean to you as a little kid and why did you stop doing it? 
Well, I think, you know, when I start, I, I started playing like on a windowsill and I played so obsessively on a windowsill that my parents got me like a cardboard uh, piano keyboard, you know, just a cutout. And then I played on that completely obsessively. And then they got me a piano because they went, okay, she seems to really mean it. And I, I played the piano, you know, five hours a day. I mean, I would come home from school and just play. I wouldn't spend the night with any friends unless they also had a piano. It was my first big love, a true passion. But I could not play in front of people. I, I may, Maybe if there was one or two people, but I didn't even enjoy that. I just, it was a private affair. So I think I was playing Flight of the Bumblebee or something like that at a at my first recital in Atlanta. And I couldn't remember the last measure of the piece. And I finally like bonked out some bass note that was in the wrong key and left the bench. And, you know, it was so traumatizing <laughs> that, that I never went back to playing in front of people. But I did not give up the piano. I continued to play the piano with a real love for years and years. So that when I read the script for the piano and she was a pianist, I, I, I went, oh, wow, it would be so amazing to get to express that on screen. And not only that, but for the audience to get to see someone who actually has a real relationship with the instrument. So it's, you don't have to fake it. It, it, it and it's, so particular and so granular that love that I knew that I it it would be so much fun for me to be able to to express that. I feel like there is a lot of technique involved in acting, but that you know beyond that technique, the really special skill of a great actor is a kind of fearless open heartedness you know, a willingness to step off a cliff as often in front of other people and certainly with other people. Did that come naturally to you? Yes. Uh, uh, stepping off the cliff acting wise was, I don't know, kind of a joy. I didn't have any of that um, fear. I mean, yes, I have fear. Of course, I, I get nervous. I, I, I Fear can drive me to a degree, but it's not it's not a crippling thing. It's a motivating thing. I mean, I think all actors negotiate to a degree with fear. But, you know, when I do a play and they say places, I'm really happy that places that we're, that that's where we are, that when the lights go down, I'm really excited to get on stage. I mean, it's really fun. It's like, yes, it's, it's much more of a big yes. Were you set on going to conservatory and becoming an actor when you were a teenager? Yeah, I. Um, this artistic director of the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, Fred Chapel, saw me in a play, and uh, and he asked me, "Did I want to apprentice with his theater company in upstate New York, a, a, a place called up? Uh, it was in Cortland." Um, Cortland, New York. And so I went up when I was 15. My parents said yes. So I went up for three months and apprenticed in this company. And it was just, oh my God. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> it was mind blowing. 
it was so it was such an amazing summer for me to be around professional actors and helping them off the stage in the dark and turning the turntable uh, at scene changes and picking up their clothes and hanging up their costumes and, you know, sweeping the stage after the show was over and then occasionally doing kind of parts in the chorus. Uh, It was, I just, I completely fell in love. Did your parents go with you? No. Thank, thank God. And and there was this one, and we all lived together in this big kind of boarding house. And I remember there was this one guy who quite a few times in, in those three months, he would do this one man version of the Wizard of Oz. And he had this pink boa that he had around his neck and he would play Dorothy. He played everybody. He played Dorothy, played the Scarecrow, Tin Man. <laughs> and of course, and he was gay. And I was 15 and I didn't even know what gay was. And that summer I went, oh, wow, all these guys are gay in in the company. (laughs) And it was just like, wow, this is so cool. This world of all these actors where everybody can be whoever they whoever they are, whoever they want to be. I I just was very I don't know. I just went I want to be in a community that is as trusting as this community is where people are in it together. And so that, that's kind of really where I made up my mind was, was in Cortland. We have so much more to get into with Holly Hunter. We'll talk about how, unlike a lot of other performers, she doesn't really want to write or direct or do show business things that aren't acting. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe, or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. There is so much Black excellence in the sciences that we want to celebrate. So in honor of Black History Month, all this week, Shortwave is featuring conversations with Black scientists and educators, people doing incredible work and pushing for a world where science serves everyone. Listen now to the Shortwave podcast from NPR. I'm Judge John Hodgman. And I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. Ten years ago, I came on Jordan Jesse Go and judged my first dispute. Is chili a soup? It's a stew, obviously. The judge has dispensed a decade of justice. He's the one person wise enough to answer the really important questions. Like, should you hire a mime to perform at your own funeral? After they cry, I want them to laugh. Do you really need a tank full of jellyfish in your den? They smell like living creatures decaying. (laughs) Only if they are decaying. Yeah, which they will be. Real people, real justice, real comedy. Winner of the Webby Award for Best Comedy Podcast. The Judge John Hodgman Podcast, every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Holly Hunter. She is, of course, the star of so many wonderful movies, Broadcast News, Raising Arizona, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? These days, she's starring on a brand new TV show, 
NBC's Mr. Mayor. Let's get back into our conversation. When you graduated school, did you like go straight to New York? When I graduated from Carnegie Mellon? Yeah, from conservatory. Yes. When I when I graduated from Carnegie, I, I yes, I went straight to New York City, which, you know, was my spiritual home. I, I had never had that connection with a place the way that I had with New York. Did you already have it? Had you been there? Or was it like uh, a hayseed uh, getting off the turnip truck and saying New York City, just as I always imagined it? Yeah, I felt like a hayseed getting off the turnip truck when I went from Georgia to Pittsburgh. Um, and then Pittsburgh is a small town, but nevertheless, you're in a, I was in a conservatory, the the workload was daunting. Um, what was required of us young actors was very impressive. And it was a, a real petri dish of pressure, of creativity, of seeing other actors who I greatly admired in that environment. You know, Cherry Jones was two years ahead of me. So I was watching Cherry when she was 19 years old, being unbelievably brilliant. She was my first mentor, really. And I I couldn't be in the same room with Cherry. She just freaked me out so much. She was so talented. Um, It was so, it was, that's a beautiful thing for a young person to be in awe of someone doing something that you want to be able to do. Um, It's enlightening and affirming. I felt very affirmed to be at Carnegie. And so then when I went to New York, in some ways I was ready to be in New York because I'd been in that Petri dish and New York is anything but a Petri dish. It is just like an explosion of people and variety and everything. It's, it's, it's everything. It's not one thing. I need to ask you about two celebrity roommates that you had in your youth in New York City, the first of which was Jason Alexander. How did you end up sharing an apartment with Jason Alexander? Well, I had the the great good luck to be introduced to a casting director, Joy Todd. And Joy just believed in me. She just went, kid, I'm going to help you. I'm going to I'm going to get you a good job. <laughs> and so while when I first hit New York, there was a screenplay for a movie called The Burning, and it was a horror film, a slasher. And she said, you know, I you know, this this is gonna be a great opportunity for you. You could go to North Tonawanda, New York, which was just outside of Buffalo, with a busload of other kids, other young actors, and be terrorized by like this guy named Cropsy at a summer camp who had like giant scissors who was going to like do do bad things to us. So Jason was on that bus. You know, he was another one of the actors who was going to be terrorized. And so we were up there for, I don't know, it was like, I felt like maybe we were up there for a month together, all of us young, um, very bright-eyed actors. And, uh, and so we all came back to New York really close. You know, I, that, they, they were kind of my first friendships in New York City. And I hung out with all those guys after we 
after we got back. And so Jason and I decided to, you know, get a place together on the Upper West Side, and we did. And we lived together for, I don't know, maybe like a year or two. I can't remember. And then he, his soon-to-be wife, and I believe that he's still married to her, um, moved in with us briefly, and then they got a place together. Uh, but that was also, that was, yeah, this was 1980. And I remember that this was in the days of uh, answering machines. And so Jason and I would be, do like really, really, re- the, once again, the height of silliness um, messages, uh, outgoing messages on our answering machine. Like we, we would make up songs. He would play the piano. I would play the piano. We would sing. We would, um, (laughs) you know, those were the days where people were doing wild and nutty things with their with their answering machines. No, I I miss that. When you say people were doing wild and nutty things with their answering machines, well, a lot lot of specifically referring to theater dorks. Well, why? This didn't happen with you, Jesse? You, you didn't do these things? Hey, I didn't we, say I wasn't a theater dork. I went to art school. We looked at it as a great opportunity to, you know, create. The other celebrity roommate I want to address is Frances McDormand, who, you know, the two of you have had such amazing sort of parallel track careers. Tell me how you ended up rooming with her. Well, uh, I did a play uh, at the um, Repertory Theater of St. Louis, which at that time was called the Loretto Hilton Theater. And I got a boyfriend out of that play. Uh, We were doing Buried Child by Sam Shepard. So I came back to New York with this new boyfriend. And his best friend was Fran's boyfriend. And uh, Fran was going to um, Yale at the time, as a as a uh, grad student, she and her boyfriend were. So my boyfriend said, hey, let's go up and visit my best friend. And so we went up there and I met his best friend and I met his best friend's girlfriend, who was Fran. <laughs> and, and uh, I, you know, Fran and I, I don't know, man, we just, we, we recognized each other. We hit it off. So she finished, she graduated from Yale and then she and her boyfriend, moved to New York. And uh, at that time, me and my boyfriend were living in the North Bronx because the North Bronx was really cheap (laughs) in the 80s. Anyway, so we said, hey, why don't you guys, there's plenty of room up here in the North Bronx. Why don't you guys get a a place up here too? So they got a place a couple of blocks from ours. And then Fran broke up with her boyfriend and I broke up with my boyfriend and we had an extra apartment. So we, she moved in, into my, into my place. And, you know, we, I don't know, we kind of had a blast. We were, we were kind of broke, but of course, when you're in your early twenties, being broke is like no big deal. Uh, I mean, it was an adventure in some way. I think, you know, it, it just felt, uh, it, it didn't feel terrible. It felt kind of fantastic. Uh, you know, you take your pleasures where you can get them. Hey man, I got, I got enough money to get a beer. Let's go to the bar. Um, you know that, that, Hey, we've, I've got enough money. We can go out to dinner next Saturday night, 10 days from now, 
you know, uh, that kind of that kind of thing. So how did uh, Joel Cohen enter the picture? I was doing a Broadway show and Joel and Ethan were casting Blood Simple. And they came and saw me in the in the play that I was doing. And I met with them and they said, oh, wow, you know, it would be so cool if you could, you know, if you could do this movie. Um, and I said, you know, I, I can't. I'm, I was leaving that show to, to open a Broadway show. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm not available. Uh, but I got my roommate is great um, and she's available. <laughs> <laughs> and so they met Fran and, and, you know, and they were like, wow, what are, who else is up there in the, in the North Bronx? <laughs> so Fran did Blood Simple. And then, you know, Joel began coming around to our place at, at this, yeah, and we were still in, in the Bronx. He started showing up up there um, and spending weekends with us and stuff because he and Fran were together. And then we decided to move back into Manhattan. And then Fran and I moved into Manhattan, but it wasn't long after that that, that she and Joel got a place uh, on the Upper West Side together. And then, the, you know, the rest is history for those guys. You ended up in Blood Simple, just barely. Yes. Once again, on an answering machine. There's a theme. <laughs> there's a theme to this conversation. Did they just keep you in mind, and and that's how you ended up in raising Arizona? Well, yeah. Um. You know. W- w- then after that, we were we're all friends. You know. So then we were we were hanging out together. Uh, we all went out to L.A. We rented a house in L.A. together for like a summer or maybe it was a winter. I can't remember. Um, and that's when we were out in Silver Lake, that's when they, they asked me to, to look at the script for Raising Arizona, which, you know, was one of the greatest scripts that I had and still will have ever read. Did you expect that you had a real shot at getting broadcast news when they were casting broadcast news? Oh, no, 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 no. Why not? I just like, no. Because you weren't a famous person? Because... Yeah, it was out of my league. But at the same time, you know, it's that thing. It is that thing. What you don't know, <laughs> what, what you don't know sometimes, you know, can't hurt you in, to a degree. There, it, there's a certain protection that youth provides. It's, there's an invincibility or there's something where you feel not that you're not human, but that like, hey, why not? What have I got to lose? That is particular. It's very specifically about being young. And when I did broadcast news, I, I was young. And I knew that he'd been looking at other actors who were very famous to do that part. I mean, they, they were just really well-known people. And I was like, wow, this, this, this is, I can't believe he hasn't cast this part yet because he hadn't cast it for like six months. And I my agent finally just said, why don't you go in for this thing? Because I've been hearing about it, but I never, I never was even curious about the script. I went, that's obviously not for me. So when my agent got me the thing, I read it and just like breezed in. Talk about no fear. I had no expectation. So no fear. So when I, I walked in and met Jim, Bill Hurt was also in the room, which, okay, so Bill is somebody who does scare me. Bill was one of those actors that I find um, 
walks on sacred ground. You know, I, I, I you know, I'd seen altered states. I'd seen body heat. It's like, oh my God, this guy? But nevertheless, the material was so much fun. And Jim was so unintimidating and so approachable and so fun for just fun. He's, he's, he's got a great sense of humor. So we, we just laughed and had a lot of fun and read through the entire script for a couple of hours, you know, and then, then I went home. Uh, and then, you know, the, and then he offered me the part the next day. New copy, Jane, just a minute. Then we're going to go to Martin Kleinich State for the message from Libya. Then you're going to have the carrier pilot from the Sidra in time to... What? No! You missed him! We only have ten minutes left. How can you talk to me about parking problems? No! Not your try. You'll do it. Do it! Or I'll fry your fat ass as still. Goodbye! I had no idea she was this good. When you're in a movie like that, you know, one of the things about doing comedy is that there are technical things to being funny. You know, you have to hit the joke in the right way for it, it to work. Uh, you know, there's rhythm and, you know, you have to put over an idea and contrast it with another idea for it to be, you know what I mean? Those kinds of things are about, for lack of a better way of saying it, trying to be funny, you know, being funny on purpose, selling a joke. And I wonder if you're in a movie like that, that is so funny, whether or not you are aware of the trying to be funny parts. Uh, in a movie like what, like broadcast like news? Like broadcast news, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you know, um, of course, it's a comedy. It requires rhythm and um, timing, you know, but it also requires just, just like doing Tina and Robert's uh, show. It requires belief. You know, you have your own set of rules as a character and all these other characters have their own sets of rules, too. And um, I think, you know, part of comedy is a collision of my rules with your rules. And and also, you know, my belief system is having a certain collision with your belief system. And that's conflict, but it's also comedy. So, you know, but but I, I, I think that, you know, musicality is always part of comedy, you know, just thinking about what makes something funny is, is, you know, three is funny, four is not. It can come down to a certain level of mathematics or music um, that I think can be employed by, by all actors who are in something that is supposed to be funny, whether it's broadcast news or Raising Arizona or Mr. Mayor. Are you proud of being funny? Uh, well, I, it's, it's just a particular, it's just another genre of, of working that I think is really challenging in a whole different way from doing a drama. It, it requires different skills. And I think I feel enlivened by that. It makes me, um, excited to go to work. Like I love to go into the set and they're shooting a scene and Bella's doing that voice that Bella Lavelle, who plays Michaela, Vela is doing that voice that Michaela has, and I am excited to be part of something where people are being that silly. It's like, oh, fun. Bobby Moynihan, so silly. We're, we're in that arena. We're, <laughs> we're in that world. Ooh. So I think that that is, uh, it's uh, a 
appetizing to, to me to go to work and be in that, that with, because it requires a certain kind of dexterity that I am, I don't know, I feel excited by it. Do you have ambitions? I have ambition for my characters, but do I have ambitions um, as an actor? Like, I don't have a production company. Um, I don't really want to direct. I feel like I've worked with so many gifted directors who were kind of born to do it that I feel, yeah, I, 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 I really love being an actor. So, but with my characters, I want to know more. I feel like that's where my ambition lays. Lies, lies, lies. <laughs> I can't tell you. Lies. I say I. I think it's where my ambition lays, because ambition is um, inanimate. <laughs> <laughs> Holly Hunter, thank you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. I'm I've like admired your work for so long, so much, and I'm so it's such a thrill to to learn that you're as as uh, delightful and and brilliant in real life as you are on screen. So thank you very much for doing this. Thanks, Jesse. Holly Hunter, a legend. She is great on NBC's Mr. Mayor, which you can watch on a few different streaming platforms, including Peacock and Hulu. If you haven't seen broadcast news, now is the time. I mean, if you haven't seen broadcast news, that should be the top priority in your entire life. You should be skipping meals to get to broadcast news. Holly Hunter, lover. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye Bullseye is created in the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, everyone is buzzing about the film Santa Jaws. It's a movie about a shark who wears one of those red Christmas uh, Santa Claus hats on his fin. It's a real movie. I don't know. This is what my kid is into. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We can help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there, and I think that's about it. Just remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.